0: We are starting this month a new series where we are going to look at the sorts of things that happen in our lives that make us wonder if God's any good, if God could be trusted. Why is he letting this happen to us? All the things that we tend to hate, we tend to spend a great deal of time avoiding or forgetting or trying to prevent. We're going to look at these things. And the title of today's sermon, Catechized by Affliction, is a great summary of what I'm hoping to talk about today. Catechized is a fancy word. If some of you have learned a catechism, catechesis is teaching. So, taught by affliction. That's a less elegant way of saying it. But catechized by affliction was a statement that I ran across in, when I was reading about John Donne. John Donne lived in the late 1500s and the early 1600s, and you may, if you studied literature in school, may have read some of his love poems. Before he was converted, he was quite the Don Juan, and he wrote about his experiences in the sort of ways that might make you blush. But he became a priest, and he was... A priest in London at the time that the bubonic plague struck the city. Thousands upon thousands of people died. Thousands upon thousands fled the city to places like this. Uh And people would come to him and ask, why is God doing this? Why is this happening? And eventually he himself started showing symptoms the doctor said, you've got the play. And so while he was on his apparent deathbed, he was not able to read. He was not able to meet with folks. He was only able to write, and he wrote this series of meditations. You can find them online. They might be in print somewhere. But he wrestled with the reality of a horrid sort of suffering. In the beginning of this, he even asked the question, how can you want men to come to you when you nail them to their bed? You see him wrestling with God in a fierce sort of match, entertaining his own death, entertaining his own boredom as he sits there in his loneliness and his fatigue and wondering, why are these things happening to me? He's calling out for his affliction to be taken away, but something happens during the process where he begins to focus less on having the affliction gone away and more on God redeeming it. Can there be some good that comes from this? Could there be some intention that you have through this, is what he begins to wonder. And he says, Let me be catechized by my affliction. Let this doggone trouble teach me something about me, about you. And if you were to care to, you could find millions and millions of words that have been spilled from pens onto paper about this very subject. It's the stuff of life. It's the stuff that all great theologians have sought to answer because it's the stuff of everybody's life. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace in one of his very instructive pastoral letter says this to someone who is suffering. I suppose you are still in the school of the cross, learning the happy art of extracting real good out of seeming evil and how to grow tall by stooping. And I think that is a great way to enter into our conversation today as we look at this word from lamentation, as we look at some of the other passages in Scripture that deal with this. We are here today to learn the happy art of extracting real good out of seeming evil and how to grow tall by stooping. The passage I just read in Lamentations was probably written by Jeremiah after the city indestructible had been destructed, destroyed obliterated in a way that nobody believed would ever happen. This was the city of the great king. This is a city that enjoyed the protection of the divine warrior, Yahweh himself. And Jeremiah is looking around in a post 9-11, worse than 9-11 sort of situation. Children are dead, parents, priests. The city is in rubble. And he says, I am a man who has seen affliction. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me. He felt mangled by God before? He screamed out to him sometime, what are you doing? Why won't you let up? And Jeremiah, the prophet, is looking on with unceasing sorrow. He has this book where he is lamenting, where he's crying out, where he is sorrowing over this destruction. And he says this, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. He does what all people who have had any acquaintanceship with God have eventually learned to do when they meet up with suffering little and suffering big. Because, see, we're not all living in the kind of context where we're dealing with apocalyptic, cataclysmic-type events like the destruction of Jerusalem. But everybody in here deals every day with aggravations. And so I'm talking about the spectrum when I talk about suffering, the spectrum of things that happen to you that you don't want to happen to you and the people you love, the things that are going wrong that you wanted really badly to go right. The things that break down that you wanted to keep running. Like your health, or your kids' health, or your parents' health. Like your job, like your business, like your economic prosperity. Like your relationships. I'm talking about those things. So the kinds of things that lay you in the dust and the kinds of things that just provoke you to frustration. And here's the first point. If you are suffering, you are in school. And if you're in Christ's school, you will suffer. See, I waited till after Christmas to say this. It's not very much of a Christmas present, is it? The scriptures are pretty emphatic about this all the way around. Hezekiah said, it was good for me to be in anguish. We're taught things. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must have its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. God always intends something with the suffering that comes upon us. And so if you're suffering, you're in school. God is trying to teach you something. He's trying to instruct you in some way. And if you belong to Jesus, the suffering Savior about whom it could be said, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with many griefs. We're told if you're one with Him, you're going to suffer too. And He told them, it's through many hardships that we will enter the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul, after his very violent conversion where he got knocked off his horse by the risen Lord Jesus, it was said of him, he will learn how much you must suffer for my name. And Paul even says to the Philippians, it's been given to you, this gift that nobody wants. It's been given to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. So that's not very exciting. And I don't ever hear anybody on TV talk about this. The preacher people, I mean. But if you follow Jesus who suffered, you're going to suffer. That's the promise. I'm sorry. But here's what you do in the middle of it. When you start to believe that you're in school, you can actually have hope in the middle of it because you can believe there's something to learn from it, that there is purpose behind it. It's meaningless suffering that leads to despair. This is the kind, even if you don't know what the reasons are, to know that God is up to something. That he's trying to teach you something. He's trying to instruct you in some way. And so Jeremiah here can say, this is what I do. I call to mind this, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. We're not swallowed up. We're like that burning bush that God appeared to Moses in that was burning, but it is not consumed. We're not totally destroyed, he says. His compassions don't fail. His gut-shaking affections and his pity for us never, ever goes away. He doesn't willingly bring affliction, he says, to the sons of men. He does it sometimes because it's the only way it'll work for them. It's the only way to bring them back. It's the only way to teach them certain things. But Jeremiah says, this I call to mind. You've heard us, if you've been around here, say a lot of times, one of the things that you must do if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to even have any success at all in managing life on a planet where things don't go right, is you have to learn to not be the victim of yourself and to be the steward of yourself. You have to learn not to just listen to yourself, but how to talk to yourself. And so Jeremiah says, I call this to mind. He says, I say to myself, he talks to himself, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And what does he say to himself? What does he call to mind? He calls to mind God's great love. Now that's a really hard thing to do because in our minds, when we suffer, when you have a sickness that won't get well, when your child's ill and you can't do anything about it, when you get left out of something that you wanted to be included in, you start to wonder if God loves you at all. If he loved me, why would he let this happen? Because, you see, we don't think of love in a very robust way. We have a very flimsy understanding of love. Love is not, as C.S. Lewis said, just kindness. We have uh, conflated the two and think, God's love means that he should be like a very benevolent and maybe increasingly senile grandfather who looks on at the kiddies down playing and thinks, oh, so long as they have... A fun time at the end of the day. (laughs) Ha no harm. And that's what we like in a lot of ways. That's what I would like. Just let them have a good time. But kindness just wants suffering removed. Kindness just wants trouble removed from somebody. It doesn't care about what becomes of the person. It doesn't care about how they are. But if you, as a parent, who are actively raising children, or as parents who have raised children... You know good and well that when you love your kids, it's not enough just to want them to have a good time. If you just want your kids to be happy, you will be a miserable parent. You'll be actually miserable because they can't be happy. And two, they won't be holy. They won't have any character. You'll never tell them no. You'll never deprive them of anything. You'll give them everything they want, and you'll ruin their possibility of happiness. Your goal isn't to make them happy. God's goal is not to make us happy, but holy, because holy makes happy. And so you wouldn't be much of a parent if you you heard your child come home and say, Hey, Dad, listen to what I did to this cat today. Now, you might inwardly say, Oh, good, you heard a cat. That's great. God hates cats too. But, no, I am not in favor of the suffering and the of any living thing. You'd be concerned, I think. You wouldn't say, well, was it fun, son? Did you have fun torturing that cat? Wouldn't you be a little bit distraught? What kind of daughter, what kind of son am I raising that likes to destroy things, that takes pleasure in someone else's pain? That's a problem. If your kid came to you and said, look at this new iPod I got, this iPod Touch, it's so much fun. And you say, where'd you get it? Well, I stole it from school. Well, does it make you happy? Do you like it? If that was the only question you ask, you wouldn't be a parent. You wouldn't be loving. We don't want our kids to steal. We don't want them to be envious. We don't want them to delight in the pain of others. We want them to be loving and compassionate. We care what they become. And so when you start to think about God's love, you have to say one of the things that God is really deeply, desperately, committedly concerned about is that we become like his son. He's undergoing this renovation project that is the most unfinished project on the planet, and he's not going to stop. So that's that. He said it. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to give up on you. You've got spots, you've got blemishes, you've got wrinkles. My aim is to get rid of them all. Now think for a second. Let's imagine that you were a pair of pants or that you were a shirt that had the great pleasure of having some wine spilled on it or something. Something blueberries, red clay, I don't know. Now imagine what it would feel like to be this garment if a garment could feel and this garment, you got your spray and wash out, and you, you beat on it a little bit, and you rubbed it in. And it was very abrasive. It didn't feel too good on you. It smelled funny. It was very harsh. And this person is rubbing this stuff in. And then all of a sudden, they drown you. They throw in you a washing machine, filling it up with water and all these bubbles. You can't breathe, and soon it starts to agitate. You're in there with other clothes. You're drowning. What are they doing to me? If you were in that moment beginning to wax philosophical about the apparent God who put you there, the person, you'd really question whether they were any good, wouldn't you? And then they throw you in the dryer, all the heat! You're tumbling, you're tossing, you're bumping into things, it's so hot! If you didn't consider that this was part of the process of making you as a garment what you ought to be. Pristine, clean, unstained, unwrinkled. You wouldn't know what you were for. And so Jeremiah calls to mind God's great love. When you are suffering and you realize, I'm in school, God's teaching me through this trouble, you have to call in mind God's love is different than what we often think of as love, he is trying to make me different. And so if trouble comes your way, you must need it. I must need this. Because if I don't have something, then I must not need it. Because the scriptures say that God works good for all those who love him. That God can work for good for all those who love him. There is nothing that comes your way that isn't for your good if you belong to Jesus. If it's coming, it must be needed. If it arrives at your door, if it arrives in your family, if it arrives at your work, it has been vetted and filtered through the hands of a father who's desperately concerned to make you what you were made to be. It's really the only way to submit to it. It's the only way to... To have any kind of joy in the midst of this aggravation of sorrow that comes our way so often. is to believe there's some purpose behind it. That God's trying to teach us something. And maybe you say, well, God, God doesn't really do that. But this is the second point. If, if affliction is really a teacher, like I'm saying, a trouble teaches us things, then there must be someone who wants us to know something or be something or hope something. And this is the uniform teaching of the Scriptures. Verse 28 Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? This is a hard teaching of the Scriptures. But it believes that God's the great king over all, over minutes and molecules, over your memories, over everything that happens. God is ruling and overruling and controlling. There's nothing outside of his control. This is the uniform teaching of the scriptures. And John Piper, who's written this really nice little tract, little essay on the eve, I think, of surgery for prostate cancer, with cancer that he has, he has an essay that's called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Don't Waste Your Cancer. And you know what his first point is in that little essay? As a man with cancer? And I know that's a horrid disease. It's affected many people in here. And people whom you love and adore. He says this, You will waste your cancer if you don't See it as from God. You'll waste your cancer if you don't see it as from God. You know the story of Job. I told it to my children this week. It seemed fitting as I'm dealing with a month-long hell rash that's been all over my body. I need to tell them about Job. And you know what Job who has such a stunningly great lifestyle, the rich and famous, and he doesn't know about this backroom deal where Satan's like, of course, you've got him set up. He's got a nice contract. Everything's fat and pretty. Start knocking his knees out and he'll cuss you. He won't like you so well if you take away his stuff. And so God says, all right, let's give it a whirl. And so Satan does all this stuff to Job, and Job says, well... After his first test, naked I came into the world, naked I depart. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Praise be the name of the Lord. And his wife rolls her eyes at him. And you know what it says? Even though Satan had done these things, and Job did not sin by attributing this wrongdoing to the Lord. Because God had to give permission. Satan's not sovereign. God is though. And after his second test, when his wife rolls her eyes no more and says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die after everything precious has been taken from him. He's got boils all over his body. He says, should we not accept good from the Lord's hand as well as bad? You may not believe it because you're the kind of people like me who are always tempted to think in any given situation, if the situation would just change, we'd be better? You think if your, if your spouse would change, you wouldn't be so angry? It's your spouse that makes you so critical. It's those dang kids and those temper tantrums that they throw that makes you so discouraged. It's the sickness that makes you so difficult to be around and filled with such self-pity. It's the fact there's so much pressure at work. The market's so unstable. That's what makes you so nervous. People have been mean to you. That's why you're trying to protect yourself. And you know, if you can believe as your circumstances become ways that you don't want, that God has tailor-made them for you, you can start to reckon with them. You can start not just to think, I need all that to change and then I'll be okay. You've got to believe that it came from the Lord or you'll waste it. And the third point is this. Affliction, I've said it teaches us things. One of the things it teaches us is it teaches us how to see ourselves and how to find God. This is what what Jeremiah says in verse 40. After all this suffering... Let us examine our ways and test them. And let us return to the Lord. Let us examine our ways and test them. You know, one of the things that tends to happen when your circumstances come crashing down around you and things are not like you want, if you actually start to believe that God's testing you or that God's doing this because he wants to teach you something, then you start asking different kinds of questions. And it might occur to you, for instance, to say, okay, I think that I just complain a lot because my husband is so unhelpful. It might start to occur to you that you complain a lot because you're a complainer. You would complain at Disney World. You are incapable of not complaining because you're the kind of person that needs everything to go your way all the time. That's what we do. Some of you think if my kids would just obey, I wouldn't bark at them and scream at them. No, it's just that you're angry. You're the kind of person who needs to be God. You need everything to go the way you want it to go all the time. Your circumstances never create your character. They just reveal it. Your circumstances, the way your boss treats you, the fact that the market's fluctuating, the fact that you might lose your job or you can't find a job, the fact that things are... Tenuous. They are not making your character, they're just revealing what sort of person you are. Because C.S. Lewis is right. Most of us, on happy days, you drive and you got the sunroof over and you're running down the road and it's sunny outside. You got not a care in the world. You feel like a pretty, warm, happy, righteous chap. He says everybody feels kind. When nothing's bothering them. Everybody thinks he's kind when really he's just unbothered. You don't really find out who you are until the heat gets turned up. Until things start to fall apart. And then when you're feeling sorry for yourself or you start to complain or you're questioning God and you're realizing, oh... I have this thing all wrong. I think he exists for me and I've forgotten that I exist for him. He's not fulfilling his end of the bargain. I'm not supposed to get stuck in a parking lot on the way to church. Things are supposed to go good for me. God's not complying with our contract. And often it's not until everything starts to go away that you can see this stuff for yourself. And you know what? In our present day, It might be the most immense mercy of God at all for us to get sick, for us to have times where you can't do anything. You know why? Because we spend our lives forgetting God. How many hours a week do people spend on Facebook or tweeting or texting? You don't have to give yourself to anything important at any point in the day if you don't want. You can totally immerse yourself in trivialities and never once think about why you were made. Who you were made for. And if God loves you, He's going to barge in sometimes and say, Doggone it, I love you too much to let you go your own way. In fact, the most fierce judgment in the Bible that God can do for somebody is to leave them alone, is to let them go their own way. That's His judgment because we always go the wrong way. Suffering teaches us that. Let us return to the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the trouble that we met in Asia Minor. We were utterly unbearably crushed. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he's raised us, and he will continue to raise us. He says, the apostles' thought on this is, the reason that trouble comes into my life is that God wants to show me that I'm designed to be dependent on him every second. He's magnetically attracted to my weakness, so I don't need to hide from it. God wants me to depend on him. So he knocks like a wrecking ball all the supports out sometimes. I don't like talking about this. It's real easy to say here. It's not easy in the middle of the night when you're not able to sleep, when people are sick, when people are dying, it's not easy to believe these things. But these things happen. And it's the way to get through these things because it is the truth. And most of us will never think about God until he's all we got left to think about. Most of us will never depend on God if there's anything else for us to depend on. And so he gives us a teacher called affliction. And I'm closing now. This is the conclusion. The only possible way. Is that hum here or is it over here? The only possible way to get to a point where you can believe that God's behind your suffering, that he means to teach you with it, that it's an aspect of his love, that he's trying to show you something about yourself and him that's authored by him. The only way you're ever going to find any solace in that It's by yielding to that. It's by submitting to a will that's bigger than yours. Can I tell you that everybody in here who ever feels anxious about anything, you know why you do? It's because it's very important to you that your will gets enacted in the world. It's important to me too. It's very important to you that your will gets enacted in the world so you spend a lot of time Working, feverishly, worrying, keeping things in place so that everything works out the way you think it ought to work out. And then on the other side, when things don't work out your way, which mostly they don't, you feel resentful, complaining, grumbling like the Israelites. You know why? Because you needed your will to work out and it didn't. So going forward and looking backwards, you're sunk if you don't have some sense. That there's a will on the planet that's more important than yours, that's better than yours, that's smarter than yours. When I was a teenager, I could remember spending the night with my best friend and being at his house. His parents wouldn't be there. And you know what he could do? He could go to sleep with every door in the house unlocked, every light on, all the TVs on, food left out, animals unfed. He didn't give a rip. He could just go to sleep, and I hated him for it. Because you know what my job was? I don't, no one told me it was my job, but I assumed it was my job. Close all the doors, shut all the lights, lock the doors, put the food away, turn everything off, make sure everything is in order. That's my job. Make sure everything's closed down. He slept. I seethed. That's how a lot of us live life. But if you get to the point where you start to realize, you know what? I'm just a dependent little creature who's been existing. I exist for God. And He knows that my happiness depends on trusting Him. He's not mean. He just knows that the best thing I've got going for me is for Him to be everything. And He's going to do whatever it takes so that we will make Him everything. John Newton said it this way, There can be no settled peace until our will is in a measure subdued. Fight against every thought that would represent it as desirable to be permitted to choose for yourself. That's the most un-American advice I can ever imagine any pastor giving to any parishioner ever. Fight against every thought that would represent it as desirable to be permitted to choose for yourself. That means you walk through the world sometimes open-handedly. Lord, I don't know what is best. But I'm pretty sure that you're kind of smart. And you do. And if you wonder what his will is for you, look at the one who lived for you. What he was willing to give up so that we would not be crushed. He was crushed. It was the Lord's will to crush him so that we would not be crushed. He learned obedience through what he suffered. That's what God's aiming to do to us. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father because God wants us to sit with him too. You can trust his will, even when all signs of him seem to have vanished. Affliction as a teacher, I hope you will learn its lessons.